Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Hello, Catherine. Hi, Jim. Oh, no. How are you doing? Have you lost your voice? No. I'm just trying to be a good citizen and not Oh, I loud. see. I see. You're worried about spreading the virus by speaking loudly or singing. I'm as trying you to control my aerosols. So often do. <laughs> yeah. No, that's good of you. That's very, that's very generous of you. I keep my droplets to myself. <laughs> um, what prompted you to do this now? There's a headline on the Atlantic. An article by Derek Thompson that says mask up and shut up. COVID-19 transmission would go down if we spoke less or less loudly in public spaces. (laughs) It sounds like you're doing ASMR. No, I'm just caring about everyone's health. Okay, okay. Um, Yeah, Derek wrote an interesting piece reminding us that the louder and more forceful the vocalization, theoretically, the more virus you're aerosolizing, which we've also discussed on this podcast in the episode about, uh, you know, singing outdoors versus indoors, and volume of voice is really a a continuum. So if you don't need to speak, uh, you know, don't uh, don't get up in someone's face and ask them how their day's going. But I think, Catherine, um, when you're alone, and I think you're recording in your closet or a closet. <laughs> um, you know, have at it. Go wild. Speak forcibly. Yeah. I Unless I you want to whisper that. I mean, if that's, you know, you can go I mean, in, a direction. in general, I think like this is just good, you know, sort of social. This is a social norm. I wouldn't mind changing anyway, <laughs> you know, but uh, no, I, I'm I am alone right now. So there's no one that I'm protecting by whispering but i'm just practicing for when i go out yeah yeah so the idea is that like you can actually control how much virus you're spilling out by just not speaking and not speaking loudly yeah and turning your head is something i do always when i'm uh running or when i have to come close to people and it's all the same like i'm not saying you can never look someone in the eye but you know you have to pass in a narrow corridor go ahead and turn your head why not wow the social norms around this are going to be really 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 yeah. strange um it's not like masks and distance are the only thing everything you do the is... only thing that's is really interesting you know something i've noticed actually um because in stores you know everybody everybody's wearing masks and then in many stores or restaurants or anywhere you go they put up these um plastic shields you know in between yeah. you and whoever you're interacting with and the thing i notice repeatedly is people can't hear each other <laughs> i know and so the the people behind are always like asking people to speak up and they're yelling they're having to yell and then they'll like move their head to the side like to avoid the barrier so they can actually hear each other you know so this is actually a it feels like a really strange thing where we put up all these barriers but now we actually have to yell at each other all the time to hear each other over the barriers and maybe netting out to you know something that's still <laughs> positive but it's not like we're actually totally solving the problem just with the barriers because if we have to 
shout all the time to hear each other. Exactly. Yeah. If you have to yell, then I don't know. I find myself leaning like around the barrier just because it's like, oh, that barrier is there. I shouldn't have to have a barrier. Right, right. Your instinct is to be like, your instinct is to (laughs) go to the space around the barrier. Right, Um, right. But yeah, it makes you realize how much we rely on on reading lips and facial expressions to interpret language. Right, right. And uh, yeah, interesting times. But if you're whispering and wearing a mask and there's a shield between you, um, mm-hmm. you're probably pretty safe, but good luck making sure that the cashier knows that you um, will be paying in credit. Or I don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Derek had some good suggestions, good taglines. You know, we're not really that good at taglines, but Derek is. Uh, yeah. Hush for your health. Make good mm. choices. Lower your voices. Keep quiet and carry on. I think those are those are pretty good. <laughs> yeah. I guess I just I hope this doesn't become some um culture war talking point where <laughs> it's like, like what? the Democrats want you to not talk now. They're gonna destroy cars, the suburbs, the family, and now you can't talk. Yeah. So anyway, you can talk. But if it's all the same, <laughs> Try don't get up and talk, shout in someone's face. Shout in someone's face, which is, you know, probably good rules for, for any time. Yeah, don't, just like just generally. Shout less. Shouldn't have done if you shout a place. lot, maybe do that less. Honestly, peop- I have seen this inclination of people to think like, I'm talking, so I need to lower my mask. And that is doubly ineffective because you're both talking and lowering your mask. Right. Which is, which is right. bad. Um, right. But I feel pretty safe that if you're both being quiet and briefly passing, you know, you shouldn't even need six feet. Like there's, you're basically emitting very little, if anything. And it's when you're talking and having animated conversation, you definitely want six feet. Right, right. Well, I think this will be good for us, especially us, uh, we who have the luxury of just shouting and hearing each other all the time. Like this is probably a, a good discipline and plenty of people get by without um, shouting at each other all the time already. So not a bad thing for us to learn. Probably, I guess. Okay, well, what we're actually talking about today is herd immunity, which I thought we already talked about. And I thought- I know, I thought we did too. Herd so. immunity keeps changing. Like at first it was like 70%. And then we talked about it a few weeks ago. And you said it could, you know, with social distancing and whatnot, um, it could be as low as 20%. But anyway, why don't you recap what herd immunity actually is? Um, yeah, it's more and it's not a number. It's an idea. Um, can you go on? <laughs> oh, do I need to say more? <laughs> um, well, I would encourage anybody who missed that last episode in July where we talked about it to go back and listen to it. But Herd immunity is an idea. It is the concept used in vaccination policy to calculate how and when vaccines need to be deployed in order to prevent outbreak of a disease. And it means that if, say, uh, you calculate a percentage of a population that needs to have effective immunity, meaning they won't get sick and spread a disease, 
in order to prevent widespread outbreaks. So when you have herd immunity, you could still get an occasional rare case or two if someone travels, but you're you're just it becomes physically impossible to have a widespread outbreak. Um, people have begun using the term talking about herd immunity in the context of when the pandemic will end. So people naturally get infected and then develop immunity through the pathways we've talked about on this show, including antibodies. How many people would have to achieve that status before the virus would no longer spread widely? So while in theory, you can sort of compare those two ideas, you can't actually use it to guide policies and predictions because in the real world, it's, um, <laughs> it doesn't work that way. So if you want to know more about herd immunity, listen to the show we did before, but here's the headline from the Washington Post that I read. Um, New Trump pandemic advisor pushes controversial herd immunity strategy, worrying public health officials. I have a couple of questions here. First of all, good. Who is the new Trump pandemic advisor? His name is Scott Atlas. He is a, a highly regarded neuroradiologist. He wrote this textbook that uh, everyone who's training in radiology uses. He has also been. Uh, vocal throughout the course of the pandemic in very conservative circles, um, saying things like that the shutdowns were were worse than the the virus and um, just sort of criticizing public health advice and guidelines to such a degree that people in the administration have called him the anti-Fauci. And the anti-Fauci. he's gone from, um, yeah, academic circles to a top advisor to the president uh, rather quickly. That's who he is. And there was this story in the Washington Post that reported that five people within the administration had said that um, that Atlas was advocating for a, quote, herd immunity, unquote, strategy. Okay, so this is what I understand from our conversations that herd immunity is a sort of scientific concept, an idea, as you said, and that it is sort of descriptive in a way with this new virus it's hard we don't actually know yet exactly how many people would have to be infected and immune for it to um basically stop spreading and of course these things depend not just on how many people but the density and the behavior and uh all that kind of stuff what is a herd immunity strategy yeah well we should say that atlas is now denying that that is the case but the post reported that five people in the administration said that this is being discussed? Yes. So it's at uh -huh. least in the conversation and the idea is out there, it has been advocated by some prominent talking heads in ultra conservative circles of this idea of just kind of let it go. Just let it run through the population and uh right. we can't it's kind of giving up on controlling it and just letting it run through. It will um kill and harm many people, but uh then it will be over. So that is the idea, yeah. And that is not technically, um, <laughs> well, that's not an approach. That is do nothing. And But the way I'm thinking about that is, so say there was a hypothetical war between us and England, modern day, and we calculated, okay, if we go to war, we're going to lose 100,000 
lives. Uh-huh. And then someone, <laughs> a talking head on TV, is like, oh, we're going to lose 100,000 lives. Let's just lose them up front and get the war over with. <laughs> well, that doesn't make a lot of sense, Jim. Right, that wouldn't, because the not war wouldn't be over. Not only does it not make over... sense, it seems morally and ethically uh, compromised. Right, and you'd lose way more than 100,000 lives, right? Because you'd have to go any... to war anyway. Well, yeah, the war continues. <laughs> does not, That's not um, how war works. There's not some baked-in number that you just are going to hit in any case. Right. Um, that's just like what your strategists right. predicted if right. you did war in a strategic, careful way. Um, and that's what would happen here. But isn't this what Sweden did, though? Like, isn't didn't Sweden just say, like, we're not going to impose restrictions, we're, we're just going to let it go? Because the economic consequences are too damaging and you know we don't have a strategy other than just locking everything down yeah and and a few other countries i know um britain initially mm -hmm. at least said that too yeah. before making this sort of radical reversal but i have not kept a close eye on the data internationally yeah. and i think it would be good to talk to someone who who has okay do you remember howie foreman i do we talked to uh, Howard Foreman, who uh, is, a, is a mentor of mine at Yale. We talked to him a few months ago in April about the costs of uh, hospitalization. He's a professor in the School of Medicine, School of Public Health, and School of Business. He studies health economics, health policy. He's also a practicing emergency radiologist. He's also obsessed with numbers and data. And so I know that he has smart ideas about how to think about this herd immunity discussion. Sounds good. Hi, Howie. Hey there, but I, I got to fix my thing. I just got a log off of this. Hold on. Okay. Try this. How does that sound? Kevin's the expert. Uh, can you tell me what we had for breakfast this morning? I had a protein bar and a peach. <laughs> was it a good peach? Oh, it's a very good peach. I love my peaches at this time of year. I'm very excited about that. <laughs> I feel like I always get bad peaches for some reason. I love peaches, but there's so many bad ones out there. I've had it. I don't want. To, I don't want to jinx myself, but this has been an extremely good year for peaches for me. Uh, congratulations! <laughs> Thank no, you. that's great. That's, no, that's something good this year. It is the type of news we need. <laughs> Uh, I think this sounds good. I'll, I'll let you guys talk. Great. All Thank right. you. Hi, this is Catherine, by the way. I know. I feel like we're, we're old friends at this point. We are. Yeah, I feel, I'm glad you feel that way, too. <laughs> uh, how are you doing, Howie? I'm doing fine. I'm very excited about this. This is like my, my passion right now. Yeah. Well, maybe could we start with I mean, what makes you feel so passionately about it? I think that this is one of these topics that very few people understand what it means. They use the term flippantly. They talk about it as a policy prescriptive without knowing what they even mean by it. And I think that there's a lot of nuance here. And in a situation like this, where we've already put 180 or 190,000 lives you know, underground, so to speak, uh, we shouldn't be flippant about things. And we should be thinking about how do we avoid as much death as possible 
and resume life as well as possible. And we've seemingly done everything wrong so far in our country. And I fear that this will just continue happening. Right. It's, it's a dangerous idea. The way they're proposing it, it absolutely is. You're referring to Atlas, or at least in the reports of what's being proposed. Right. I mean, whenever they talk about herd immunity, whenever they talk about ripping the Band-Aid off or any of those things, it is an absolutely dangerous idea. And I'm astonished that people think about it. Now, looking at Sweden, as we might do, I think is a different. There are lessons to be learned from Sweden. And I think no one should be flippant about saying Sweden was horrific or the worst thing that could have happened. But Sweden ultimately did not pursue the policy that we seem to be pursuing right now. Sweden has become this sort of... I thought they did. I'm confused. I'm just filling in some context here. Yeah, yeah. Sweden became this reportedly textbook case of using a herd immunity approach, or at least they initially said they were going to. Is that right? So, you know, it started off with Sweden and the United Kingdom talking about pursuing herd immunity. And then, you know, England got uh, cold feet and Sweden, you know, supposedly proceeded with this, but they didn't. Sweden actually did a lot of things to curtail the spread, a lot of things to curtail the spread. And what people seem not to understand is we do things in our country, even in some areas that are, quote, still shut down, that would not be tolerated in Sweden. Like what? They still have a ban on gatherings of 50 people or more. I mean, yeah. Wait, all I saw, I feel like the picture of Sweden I have in my mind is everyone like out without masks, enjoying the summer all together. No one doing anything differently. They are without masks. So for the most part, they're without masks. There's some rumor on, on, uh, uh, in the news that they might actually recommend masks pretty soon, uh, which wouldn't surprise me because they're talking about relieving, or maybe they already said that they're going to relax the ban on gatherings in October. Um, and I think people are concerned about that. And I forget if they're going from 50 to 150 or something like that, but they're relaxing the ban. But they still have a complete ban on visiting retirement homes. Right. They still have a ban on public gatherings of 50 people. I'm looking at their website now to make sure that I get this right. Gatherings that constitute (laughs) demonstrations, basically (laughs) gatherings that constitute demonstrations or which are otherwise held for discussion, expression of opinion or providing information on public or private matters. These are banned. Gatherings for religious practice, banned. Theatrical and cinema performances, concerts, banned. I did not know that. And and this is what bothers me is because, you know, our president did a rally in Tulsa. This would have mm-hmm. been banned in Sweden. Oh. So if anything, we're the country that's maybe closest to this uh, herd immunity approach. I don't I, I don't even want to use that term, really, because we're doing yeah. a lot as well. But no one is honestly just letting the thing run wild, as the idea might suggest. That's absolutely correct. And then even if you were to run, let it run wild, there are so many steps between that and the possibility of herd immunity that that still becomes impossible. Like it is still, in my mind, it is impossible in the way that people imagine what herd immunity means. What do people imagine it means? Because that's probably whatever I have in my mind. So if you've, if, if you have a a good understanding of herd immunity, then you know that if we achieve a certain percent of 
immunity in the population, and by that we almost always mean vaccination immunity, that you cannot get an epidemic outbreak in that community. You can still get spread. You could still have a person come to our country with measles and go into a classroom and somebody will get measles from that person, but you will not have a measles outbreak because there are sufficient numbers of people that are immune to measles that in the process of trying to spread, the virus will extinguish itself. So you might get two or three people infected, but it will never take off again. Even if the entire community could have 10,000 people that are not immune to measles, it will not take off. You'll have a few people infected and it will die out. That's herd mm -hmm. immunity, right? Mm -hmm. That requires that the individuals are truly immune to the virus, which means that the virus not only doesn't affect you and cause you to get sick, but you actually can't get infected. You can't spread the virus if somebody came in proximity to you. So there's two layers to that, right? One is maybe there is a treatment or vaccination out there that will prevent me from getting sick from a, a virus, but maybe I'm still spreading it to other people. That wouldn't give us herd immunity. I need to not only not be able to get sick, but I need to not be replicating the virus within me and spreading it to others for me to contribute to herd immunity. Right. Got it. Mm -hmm. But there are other ways then that you can contribute to herd immunity functionally, if that's your definition of it, right? So you can reduce the spread below one through a lot of means, but that's not herd immunity because okay. herd immunity... I mean, herd immunity ultimately means that the herd protects you from your you know, normal daily functioning from having an outbreak. And let me give you an example. Let me give you a couple of examples of, of why this, I think, can be much more obvious if you, if you think of it this way. So imagine you're in Corona, Queens, which ironically is the community in New York that has the highest outbreak of SARS-CoV-2, right, with about 51% of that part of Queens, New York has antibodies and presumably is immune. We hope they're immune. We, by the way, don't know that yet, but imagine that they are. That means that there are probably some buildings in Corona, Queens that have 80% or maybe even 90% an outbreak where, where most of the people in the building already had it. It's run wild in the building. That building, which may have a 500 people in it, has true herd immunity, and you cannot have an outbreak in that building. So if you go down to the common room, if you're previously not infected, you could still get infected, but it will not run wild in the building again. It just can't. That's herd immunity. And we should mention, just always keeping in mind, that that herd immunity, while maybe a relief now, would have come at the cost of many lives. Cost of many lives and potentially morbidity that we don't know about yet. Yeah. Like, I, I say this with a lot of caution because people, you know, get scared when I say this out loud, but like we have no idea whether having had this infection means that 10 years from now you're at an elevated risk of lymphoma. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I mean, I'm just saying that as a get that it's not like there's any indication that it would, but we just don't know. Right. And by the way, we don't know what a typical cold virus does for people in the long run because we've never done epidemiologic studies on individual cold viruses over time. But we also have lots of questions among us about why do certain people get lymphoma, leukemia, pancreatic cancer, and so on and so forth. Like, we just don't know answers to these things. But one of the possible answers could be you had like a, a cold certain virus. virus. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. Oh. 
We know that hepatitis C leads to uh, liver cancer. We know that human papillomavirus leads to cervical cancer. Right. We know that EBV leads to certain cancers. We know that HIV leads to certain cancers through a different mechanism. We know a lot of things ultimately can lead to cancers. Like we just don't know about this. So well, I'm not, okay. I, don't want, mm-hmm. I don't want people to panic over that because I think that's unnecessary, but we just don't know. So even if you thought you could get to a vaccination equivalent immunity through infection, you still run tremendous risks beyond just the immediate mortality and the immediate morbidity. Right. There are things we're not seeing that we need to consider. And so without suggesting specifically that this virus is causing cancer, there is reason to think that, I mean, we have no idea what the long-term effects will turn out to be. And so we don't want to mess around with infecting anyone who doesn't need to be infected. Right. And, and let's, so let's go back though, to the example. If you have this building that now has herd immunity in Corona Queens, that also means there's another building in Corona Queens that probably has 10 or 20% immunity at this point, right? Because if it's 51% in the whole area, it's got to balance out somewhere. So even if people might say, oh, Corona Queens is close to herd immunity, they are not close to herd immunity. There may be buildings in Corona Queens that are close to herd immunity, but 80 or 90% immunity in one building does nothing to protect the other building that has 10 or 20%. And if those are old people who suddenly go out again or who suddenly let their guard down again, you could have a massive outbreak, even in Corona Queens. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm. That was something that came up in the story I wrote on this a while back, that You know, when there are states that are talking about their percentages, you could have huge portions of the state that are untouched and people might have a false sense of security if they're seeing numbers about their state having high levels of immunity when, in fact, their area has extremely low levels and is very vulnerable to a severe outbreak. This is uh, all to say (laughs) the concept is not going to guide us in any meaningful way when talking about policy. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And you've told me that people are misusing some of my writing and advocating for this approach. Did I mess up? I don't think you messed up. I think you've always brought light and truth and illumination to these topics. I do think there are a lot of people out there, some of them that are without a doubt bad actors, many of which I think are innocent actors or naive actors who have latched on to this idea that maybe we could get to, quote, herd immunity at 20%. But if what they mean is get to a level where we could resume normalcy in our lives, then the answer is absolutely not. If they're talking about could we get back to a normal that looks like Sweden now where we ban gatherings of more than 50 people and where we are, in our case, masking up a lot and maintaining social distance and testing a lot uh, and that we could keep it down to a, a low enough level that elderly people could go out at eight in the morning to a supermarket to buy their foods without having a fear of, you know, a very elevated risk of infection that is a level of protection that's not herd immunity. Right. Okay. So there's a kind of difference in in terms here. I think that the headline of that story that I wrote ended up being a new understanding of herd immunity. So either either you have a new term or a new understanding of this, but we're not it's not herd immunity in any sort of classical understanding of the word 
or a formal understanding of the word. That's right. And, and by the way, there's never been a, a real case. Somebody told me of a local example, uh, but there's never been an example of herd immunity through infection. And, and let me just say one For other thing For any disease about- ever? Correct. Yeah. What? Correct. Yeah, herd immunity doesn't occur through infection. It occurs through vaccination. In fact, the term itself didn't arise until just a few decades ago when we had vaccination programs. There is sort of what James is talking about, which is that as large waves of infection pass through communities, you had lower levels of outbreak in most years, and then you would have epidemic outbreaks other years, which probably is the closest thing you could talk about with infection occurring, but that's not herd immunity. You're still having outbreaks all the time. You're just having bigger waves and smaller waves. Jim, I think you have to write a new piece, and the title has to be A New, New Understanding of Herd Immunity. (laughs) The term herd immunity strategy makes even less sense to me than it did before, now that the term herd immunity doesn't even make sense. Yeah, so if if you said to me that we don't have tests, there's never going to be a vaccine, we don't know how to test for this, we don't know how to do a lot of other things, what do we do? You might strategize about, okay, well, we're just going to have to lock down our elderly and our vulnerable people. We're going to come up with a way of living with the new normal. We're going to expect that we're still going to lose a lot of people periodically. Um, And this is what we have to do. And therefore, in order to resume schools, in order to resume other things, we're going to have to accept the number of deaths that are going to occur because there just is no other alternative. But as Jim knows, you know, we have talked about this since February. We know how much testing alone could do to help us here. And you combine massive testing with some limitations, with masking and social distancing. And then you have to ask yourself, why would you allow people to just die in such large numbers when you have these alternatives that are readily available to us and that, you know, quite frankly, could allow us to get much closer to a normal life than we are right now? Mm -hmm. Well. What's the answer? Honestly, you know, aside from coming up with political conspiracy theories, I am at a loss. I really do think that sometime, uh, I'm hoping by the end of November, the entrepreneurs who have been developing these cheap tests like Abbott just announced recently and others are going to allow us to test at such a massive scale at such a low cost that we'll be able to substantially impact this in a way that we haven't so far. But I'm also 100% convinced that if our federal government had thought about this back in February and March and decided that they were going to commit even one-tenth of the amount of money that they committed to a vaccine to a cheap testing initiative, that we would have already saved tens of thousands of lives uh, and certainly would have saved tens of thousands more going forward. The question I have about this as sort of a political pronouncement or political strategy or something, I mean, something that I have been struggling with over this whole time is, you know, there are so many alternatives to how we could be managing this. They are known, they are possible, and yet the reality is that our current political leadership and system cannot pull it off, like just can't. So In some ways, I want to continue to be optimistic and press for things that make sense. And on the other hand, I want to acknowledge the situation we're in. So to some extent, I'm almost wondering if announcing a herd immunity, quote, strategy is not 
something new and alarming necessarily, but just an acknowledgement of the reality that already exists? Look, I think it's a disinformation campaign because there is no herd immunity that will come of it. So it's a a disinformation campaign. Now, you know, when it comes to public health, we generally have been far, far more apolitical. I mean, maybe the HIV AIDS crisis is an example where it was politicized, but for the most part, our public health crises have been faced in a bipartisan way. People have wanted to lean on experts. Nobody even remembers whether Francis Collins was ever registered as a Republican or a Democrat. You know, our public health officials in general are thought to be apolitical. This is a very unusual time we're in where it's become politicized. And, you know, it's not a surprise to me that the president is always looking to the person who will uh, fulfill his narrative as opposed to looking for people to teach him about, you know, how best to manage this. That's an important dynamic to note, right? Because we're all susceptible to this in some way in our lives, but hopefully not to this degree. But Scott Atlas, you were familiar with his work when I wasn't. He's a he's a radiologist of uh, good repute in terms of uh, radiology acumen, if I understand that yes. correctly. Yes. And yet he had made his name in this pandemic as sort of going against the public health directives. Um, he's been called inside the White House the anti-Fauci. And that seems to be the draw of the president. He wants to surround himself by people who tell him what, what he wants to hear. And we are all susceptible to hearing what we want to hear. The idea of something like herd immunity, the idea of a vaccine being right around the corner, the idea of hydroxychloroquine working. These are things we all want to be true and we want to hear. So it takes cognitive work to push back and just look at the facts. How do you manage to do that yourself and not fall prey to these narratives that are really, really tempting? I think that all of us, you know, get into our own little bubbles. I find that on social media, I know that on days that I report something that does not fulfill the narrative of, you know, the people who follow me, that that I'm going to get less likes and less retweets on it. People will get angry at me for saying that deaths are going down in the country sometimes. I mean, that's not a good thing. I don't like that. Um, And I push back on that. Um, I do know that it exists. You know, Scott Atlas, I've met in person only briefly when I was at Penn. You know, he is a very well-known neuroradiologist with a textbook. He was very well-respected. And he pivoted, I I think, over a decade ago now to working on very conservative policies. I, I think it would be very, very difficult for anybody of science to actually want to work for this president, when you know that the president believes that he knows more than the generals, as we say, Um, it would just be very difficult to do that. Now, I think that there are some well-meaning people who say, well, I'm just going to go there. I'm going to be honest with him in private and in public. I will try to be as supportive of him as possible, but I won't, you know, undermine myself. You know, I think at this point, Dr. Atlas has undermined his own integrity by basically buying into narratives that are, for the most part, fringe in the public health sphere. This does not mean, and they try to frame this, this does not mean that those of us 
who think herd immunity theory is crazy believe that we should all be in lockdown at any given point in time. It's just that we believe there are strategies where we could have locked down early on, where we could have moved to massive testing, social distancing, and masking, and, and opened our economy slowly, opened up activities slowly, and protected the public's health while moving to a, a more robust economy once again. It sounds like the uh, we're all waiting on the vaccine, the vaccine, the vaccine. But it seems like what you're saying and what I've heard elsewhere is there is this other way to deal with this, which is testing. And there's just not enough focus on testing right now. And we should talk more about that soon because testing is actually the way to control this until a vaccine is available and we're just nowhere near where we need to be in terms of providing tests and uh, results in a, you know, useful time frame. A- absolutely. We, we, we wrote a, a little pithy op-ed in USA Today two months ago now where we said that testing is the vaccine. And at that time, I was not sufficiently savvy as Michael Minnett at Harvard is about just w- how far along we were towards these very, very cheap tests. I was, I, you know, I was quarreling about whether we should say ten or twenty dollars a test as being achievable. Yet now we're talking about one to five dollars for these tests. Yeah. This is the way out until we have a vaccine. And by the way, we may not have a vaccine. Like it's not yeah, a fait right. complete. Yeah, yeah. So we really need to be thinking about testing and pressing on testing. That is the thing we- to focus on right now. Because we know it works. Yeah. Right. Right. Thank you. I, this is a lot of new information for me. So I appreciate it. Well, I want you both to know that I did wear a tie today because I was told that even though it's a podcast and I didn't have to wear a tie, I thought I would wear one for this event. (laughs) I I just want you Um, to know that. I'm not going to mention the level of professionalism of my clothing out of respect to you. I, I just want to know, you know, I may have a, a face for radio, but I have a tie on for the podcast. That is really nice. <laughs> it's called enclosed cognition. I'm told that you sort of, uh, w- maybe will think and, and speak the way that you are dressed. <laughs> I like that. See, this is why I'm you're Dr. Trouble. James Hamblin. <laughs> um, thank you so much. As always, Howie, I, I, I feel like with your expertise in, in, in economics, health policy, practicing medicine, public health, and uh, political narratives, this is like a just a, an amazing moment for your mind and insights, and it's very valuable. Thank you uh, for the work you do. Thanks very much. Thanks for both uh, what you both do as well. Talk to you again soon, I hope. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. We got to talk about testing more. Yeah, absolutely. Soon. I really, really want to understand this because it seems like it's the only it's the only way. Right? It's part of the third way. Yes. It's part of the third way. It, testing mm-hmm. is the third way. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's talk more about okay. it soon. Just, um, and that way you don't have to talk quietly either. You don't have to sit and whisper. Right. Right. Well, no, I mean, you probably, it's probably still a good idea. <laughs> Um, the thing about Sweden is fascinating because like a Sweden strategy, we're already doing in some ways less than Sweden. Yeah. I think people make up these myths about certain places that 
didn't do much and are fine. Mm-hmm. And that's often, you know, it's either wishful thinking or, or willfully misleading. And there will always mm-hmm. be these glimpses of places, I think, where mm-hmm. they come out of lockdown or didn't lock down quickly and things weren't that bad. But what we see is that it does catch up to places. There hasn't been a country that just did nothing and has not yet gotten hit. So, yeah, yeah it's a nice fable. Um, so the Sweden model isn't actually a model. Herd immunity is not actually what you think it is. And a herd immunity strategy based on the Sweden model is basically a phrase that doesn't make any sense at all. (laughs) Yes. Um, Cool. Equilibrium, I guess, is where we are. Equilibrium. That's really helpful. Equilibrium, the third way. These These are your new terminologies, and I like them. In the third way, we reach an equilibrium. Yeah. Just like you do with the skin microbes that keep you healthy on your skin. Jim, I haven't, I've, I've been showering less, by the way, just to. Oh, good. I'm hearing that. I'm hearing that more and more. People are talking. <laughs> You're spreading. Not about you, but about themselves. Uh, yeah. So but hopefully we'll be coming back to talking about herd immunity, not before <laughs> there, we're talking about it in terms of vaccine rollouts, because that's where you'll talk about, okay, we need to get 90% of people vaccinated, et cetera. Right. And let's not talk about it again. Till then, okay? <laughs> yeah, fine by no. fine by me, unless it comes up in the news again. <laughs> no promises. Um, okay, let you, but we should talk. Well, let's talk more about testing. Well, uh, I'm gonna. I hope you have a good day. I hope you um, modulate the loudness of your speaking voice to protect <laughs> others around you. Is that the that was the the catchphrase we had, right? Modulate your speaking voice to protect the others around you. That was the catchphrase. Uh, Honestly, I have more respect for that as a catchphrase than something that feels like it's manipulating me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's a, I mean, there's a clear parallel here to the pandemic about like mask wearing and, you you know, when you tell people that they have to do something or can't do something, some percentage of us, and I have this impulse all the time, my reaction is just to be like, you can't tell me what to do. I'm going to do the opposite. You know, the, the 14 year old in me feels that way about every public health message ever. So that's why I am hesitant to try to do a talk softly campaign. Dr. Jim is trying to get you to stop talking because he doesn't want to hear your opinions. (laughs) Right. right. Um. Speak softly and wear a big mask. (laughs) Okay. I do like that one. (laughs) Um, this show was produced by Kevin Townsend. Write us at social distance at theatlantic.com. We also have a phone number. Honestly, not that many people call us, which I don't begrudge at all, but you know, we listen. If you wanted to call us, we'd listen. They're just voicemails, you know, you don't have to talk to anyone. Yeah. And you can talk on the voicemail as loud as you want. Mm-hmm. 202-642-6487, if you feel like it, no pressure. And uh, as we always say, the best way to support this show and to get access to all of the Atlantic's journalism is with a subscription to the Atlantic, theatlantic.com slash support us is the URL to use. We will talk next week. Talk to you soon. Bye. Okay. Bye. So should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? 
Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander, or we could do something in between like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So Toyota is electrified diversified? Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly. How much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.